0: Our passage this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. The most important and consequential life ever lived on this earth, and forever will be, is that of Jesus of Nazareth. And the most momentous days of his life was his last week in his earthly body. The final week of Jesus' earthly life was so important that large portions of the four Gospels are devoted to recording the events of that week. This is the case because these were not only the climactic days of Jesus' earthly life, but the climactic days of all of history. This was the most important week in the history of the world. And it was so because the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and salvation from God's wrath and condemnation in an eternal hell depended on what Christ did that week. Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross outside the city gates of Jerusalem on a hill called Gogotha. On that cross, God laid upon him the sins of all his people and poured out the full fury of his wrath upon him, the full fury of God's wrath that was rightfully and justly due to you and me. On that cross, Jesus suffered and died as a substitute for his people. As Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Jesus Christ was crucified, on a cross, as a substitute for his people. And then, three days later, just as he said he would, he rose triumphantly from the dead, having defeated sin and death and the grave and hell and Satan himself. His resurrection was God's affirmation and God's proclamation that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And that his resurrection is a guarantee to everyone who believes in him of resurrection to eternal life with him forever. As Jesus himself said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. This is what happened that momentous week more than, more than 2,000 years ago. As Paul said in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he was delivered up for, for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And that week began when Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem sitting upon a colt with multitudes with crowds of people surrounding him, spreading their cloaks on the road, and some of them throwing palm branches in in his path, rejoicing and praising God. This is what we contemplate and celebrate on Palm Sunday. It is the beginning of what many call Holy Week or Passion Week, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the event that we want to consider this morning on this Palm Sunday. And all four gospel writers record Jesus' triumphal entry into uh, the city. But to get a full account of what happened that day, it is important to read all four gospels and to take the narratives in totality. So I encourage you this week to do that, to see the beginning of this week of passion, this triumphal entry of Christ into that city of Jerusalem. But this morning we want to consider this event from the account given to us here in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. So let us go ahead and read that and consider what the Lord has for us on this Palm Sunday. Beginning in verse 28, Luke chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, When your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. When we look at this passage of Luke's account of that day when Christ rode into the city, there are several things of significance that I would like for us to consider. We see, first of all, that Jesus entered that city in a unique, for him, a unique way. A way that he had never done, ever before in his earthly ministry. I want us to consider Jesus entering into that city. And I I want us to to consider a couple of things about that. Why did Jesus enter Jerusalem that day? And why did he enter Jerusalem in the manner in which he did? Jesus entered Jerusalem that day because his time had come for him to fulfill the will of his father. You could say this was a pre-appointed date. Jesus entered Jerusalem that day because his time had come to accomplish the work of redemption for which his father had sent him to do. It was God's eternal purpose and plan for his son to die on a cross in Jerusalem for the sins of his people. This was the testimony of Peter in his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Peter said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Although wicked and lawless men had of their own will put Jesus to death, and these wicked men were responsible and accountable for their actions. These actions were within the sovereign determination of God. Jesus would not have been crucified if wicked and lawless men had not done it. But wicked and lawless men would not have done it and could not have done it if God had not ordained it to be. This was also Peter's testimony in his first epistle, in 1st peter chapter 1 verses 18 through 20 when he was writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion peter told them you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver and gold but with the precious blood of christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot he was foreknown peter said before the foundation of the world but was made manifest In the last times for your sake. This was the testimony of the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4 when they prayed for Peter and John. They lifted up their voices together and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? So, of their own will and of their own determination, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers and the people of Jerusalem gathered themselves against the Lord Jesus, and they crucified him. But in doing so, they accomplished the determinate plan and predestined, and predestined purpose of our sovereign Lord. You see, the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus Christ was not an afterthought with God. It was his definite and determined plan from eternity past. John said in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This is why the Son of God took upon himself human flesh and entered into this world Jesus said in John three thirty four, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And in John six thirty eight through 40, Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This was the will of his Father. This is why his Father sent him to this earth. And Jesus always did the will of the Father. The Gospels tell us that Jesus knew the appointed time for him to go to Jerusalem and to complete this work that his father had given him to do. Earlier in Luke's gospel, we read in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke says that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And Luke repeats this two verses later in chapter 9, verse 53, when he says, his face was set toward Jerusalem. Jesus, is, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. This means, uh, because the days drew near for him to be taken up, this, these words, taken up, are wonderful and are very meaningful. It means to be lifted up from the earth. When Jesus knew that the days were approaching for him to be lifted up from this earth in Jerusalem, he set his face to go there. These words, no doubt, have reference to his crucifixion, to his resurrection, and to his ascension. They speak of his being lifted up from the earth and hanged on a cross. They speak of his resurrection being lifted up out of the earth. And they also speak of his ascension being taken up out of this world to the right hand of his father. Taken up then speaks of Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. So beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Luke looked on everything that followed in the light of Jesus being lifted up in Jerusalem. And so did Jesus himself. So knowing that the days drew near for him to be taken up, we're told that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. This statement can be translated literally as, He, the face, steadfastly set. It denotes boldness and courage and constancy and firmness of mind. Jesus resolved to go to Jerusalem and die, and nothing would hinder him from doing that. These words of Luke are strikingly similar to that great prophecy of the Messiah in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah wrote this. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, And I know that I shall not be put to shame. In the words of the prophet Isaiah and in the words of Luke, there is the same idea. There is a picture here that is given of a clear knowledge of what awaited Jesus and of a steadfast resolve to go to Jerusalem and to accomplish the purpose of divine love for which the Father sent him the narrative of the gospel of Mark adds to this picture of his steadfast resolve to go to Jerusalem. In Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, in speaking of what appears to be the final epic in his journey, Mark wrote this. And Jesus and his disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, And after three days, he will rise. Here his disciples see Jesus hasting to get there. They were amazed and they were frightened. Spurgeon comments on this passage. He says, what a picture this is. Christ striding along the steep mountain path far in advance with solemn determination in his gentle face and his feet making haste to run in the way of the Father's commandments, his feet making haste to run to his death. And lagging behind, that little group awed into almost stupor and shrinking in uncomprehending terror from that light of unconquerable resolve and more than mortal heroism that blazed in his eyes. So, Luke, beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, everything he wrote about was that solemn and determined progress for Jesus to go to Jerusalem where he would die for his people in accordance to the will of God. We see this throughout Luke's narrative. He finally made his way from Jericho to Bethpage and Bethany. And we read in verse 28 of our text, he was going up to Jerusalem. You see, Jesus knew the appointed day for him to die was near. He knew what he would meet there and what he would have to endure. He knew he was going there to suffer a painful, shameful, and accursed death. He knew he was going there to bear the sins of his people. He knew he was going there to bear the curse of the law and the wrath of God. Yet none of these things deterred him. None of these things moved him. He was determined and resolute to accomplish the eternal purpose for which his father sent him. Oh, the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus, and this is important for us to know, Jesus made a voluntary and willing sacrifice of himself. He chose to give his life for the sins of his people. Jesus laid down his own life. Nobody took it from him. Jesus said this himself in John chapter 10. He said, I lay down my life. I lay down my life, and I take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. You see, this is why Jesus entered Jerusalem on that Sunday, to voluntarily lay down his life for his sheep. Herein is love as John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, the appointed day had arrived, the day toward which all of history had been moving. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read, that this was the day that prophecy was, fu- was fulfilled. Matthew says in Matthew 21, 4, this took place, his triumphal entry took place to fulfill uh, what was spoken by the prophet. And that prophet was Zechariah. The prophecy that we read this morning in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Zechariah, hundreds of years... <coughs> before this entry of Jesus into that city, wrote this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, he said, your king is coming to you. This king is righteous, and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is why Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. And this is why he entered Jerusalem that day. His time had come to fulfill the will of his father, to accomplish the work of redemption for his people. And this is also the reason why Jesus entered the way he did that day we notice that he entered Jerusalem openly and publicly. He entered Jerusalem as a king. And he did that before the gaze of the whole world. I, I have read and I have heard it said that it was a great exhibition of the humility of Jesus that he was willing to ride upon a colt. Jesus was indeed humble. He was meek and he was lowly of heart. But riding upon a colt was not indicative of of this. It was a sign, it was a symbol of his kingship that he chose to ride into that city on a colt. At this time in the eastern world, A colt was the ride of royalty. In those times, kings would would ride upon colts. They would ride upon colts that were kept especially for them for this purpose. And the colt was an animal of a man of peace. A king would ride upon a colt telling his subjects, That he is the king of peace. This is why Jesus entered Jerusalem that day the way he did. And as we have just read this morning, Zechariah spoke of this in Zechariah 9.9. He told Israel, he told the people how their king was going to come. This king who was righteous, this king who has salvation, He would be humble, yes, and he would be mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah was not saying that when their king came, he would prove his lowliness by riding on a colt. He was rather saying that when their humble king comes, he would come in royal majesty, mounted as kings are mounted upon a colt. You see, Jesus, before the whole world, identified himself publicly as the king of kings and the prince of peace. And Jesus entered Jerusalem like this, openly and publicly. There were millions of people in and around Jerusalem during the Passover season. Jesus rode into that city. In sight of them all, he was riding upon a colt, and he had a kingly procession, as we see in verses 36 through 38. We're told, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the, ro- on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This was the procession for a king. They were spreading their cloaks on the ground. This was an act of reverence. This was an act of recognition of royal dignity. And in Matthew chapter 21 and also in Mark chapter 11, we're told that others of them, spread palm branches on the ground. This, too, was a common act during the procession of of royal majesty. Jesus entered Jerusalem like this that Sunday at the Passover time of the year. The Jewish historian Josephus said that there were more than one million Jewish people who would converge upon Jerusalem to celebrate and to observe the Passover. The Gospels make it very clear. They make it an effort to, to let us know the masses of people, the multitude of, of people, not only those who followed him from Bethpage, but others who saw him coming and rushed out to see this king coming. There were multitudes of people, and he did this openly. And this is very significant, because there was no other time in Jesus's earthly ministry that he did anything like this. All of his ministry up until now had been fairly private and personal. In fact, he would leave when when people began surrounding him, but not on this particular day. It was time now. It was time for the king, it was time for the Messiah of God to publicly broadcast who he is and to proclaim to the whole world of his person. It was the open and public display of the king of kings, the Lord of salvation. It was King Jesus coming unto his own for all the world to behold. And it was the beginning of the procession of the Lamb of God who would be led to the slaughter, who would die for the sins of his people and, and rise from the grave victorious over sin and death. This is why Jesus entered Jerusalem that day the way he did, to publicly present himself as the King of Israel in the Lamb of God. This was the purpose of God. It was the purpose of God that the death of his son for the sins of his people would be open, would be a public spectacle. It was in the wisdom and the purpose of God that it would be looked upon and it would be known by the whole world. The eyes of the whole world would be directed to Jesus Christ. The eyes of the whole world would be directed to the crucified Savior. The eyes of the whole world would be directed to the ascended Christ. He was to die publicly outside the gate on a a cruel cross in the shame and disgrace of an open execution. Jesus could have been offered as a sacrifice in some private place. He He could have been offered on the summit of some desolate mountain but in the wisdom of god it was necessary it was necessary then and it was it is necessary for the church in all ages that his death be witnessed that his death be certified this meant that jesus's death on the cross must be publicly displayed and openly acknowledged It has pleased God that the death of Christ should be public, should be known, and should be acknowledged. Paul said to King Agrippa in Acts twenty six twenty six, "This thing was not done in a corner." And this is part of the purpose of Christ in you and me today. The public, open, and unashamed identification and proclamation. Of the death of Jesus for our sins. It is the purpose of Christ and of God that we who are saved shall be identified with Him openly and publicly for all the world to see. If you are a Christian, your confession of Christ as your Savior and your commitment to Him is to be open and public and unashamed. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. The open confession of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and the public identification with him for all the world to see is your purpose as a Christian. The author of Hebrews says, in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 through 15, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the gate and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. We, you and, you and me as Christians, are summoned to go outside the camp with him and accept the rejection that he did in the confident expectation of that lasting city to come. Let us then go outside the camp and faithfully and joyfully bear the reproach that he endured. This is our call as a Christian. It may cost us a lot. It may cost us our friends. It may cost us our livelihood. It may cost us our liberties. And it may even cost us our lives. But this is God's call upon you and me as Christians to openly, publicly identify ourselves with Jesus Christ and to proclaim him so that all the world will look upon him. This is why Jesus entered Jerusalem the way he did. You and I as Christians, we, we do this with the confession of our mouth. We do this through water baptism. We publicly identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. We we do this when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And we do this every day as we walk as children of light, when we live as Christ lived. You and I must stand by Christ We must stand by his his cross at any cost, at any sacrifice, even unto death. You and I must publicly commit our lives to the Lord Jesus, and you and I must publicly proclaim him, so that every ear and every eye will hear him and look upon him as our crucified and risen Lord. This is why Jesus entered Jerusalem in the manner in which he did. It was his public, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is what it meant. And there's one final point that I want us to consider before we close, something that is quite remarkable when we read this passage in Luke and in other gospel accounts, we see Jesus, we see Jesus the king, sorrowing in bitter grief as he entered Jerusalem. Jesus' response in verse 41 of our text speaks of the sorrow and the tragedy that he was experiencing In verse 41 of our text, we read, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. In the midst of all the fanfare of of the multitude of his disciples rejoicing and singing hymns of praise for the coming king, Jesus wept. He wept when he saw Jerusalem. He did not weep over his own fate, but he wept for the fate of those people and the fate of that city. Jerusalem would be destroyed, and they all would die in their sins because they would reject him as the Christ. Jesus wept over the blindness and the impending misery of Jerusalem. The blindness of the people was such that they did not know Jesus as the Christ, and they did not discern the meaning of his coming that day. Jesus said in verse 42, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. They did not know this. And Jesus wept. They did not know the things that make for peace. Jesus was not talking here about political peace. He was not talking about material prosperity. He was speaking about peace with God. Peace in your soul. These people did not know that. And this broke Jesus' heart. He wept. You see, these people did not know that they were at enmity with God. They did not know that they were dying in their trespasses and sins. They did not know that they were lost and under the judgment of God. And they did not know the things that make for peace. Peace. His sacrificial and substitutionary death on the cross made peace with God. The shedding of his own blood for the forgiveness of sins brings all who believe in him peace with God. And they did not know this. And Jesus wept. And Jesus said in verse 44 that they did not know the time of their visitation. Here is their king. Here is the Christ. Here is the Lord and the Savior, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He had come to them. They did not know it. Zechariah had told them he was coming. He had told them to rejoice, to rejoice greatly, because your king is coming. He told them to shout with joy because your king is coming. The king who is righteous in and of himself. The king who gives righteousness to all who believe in him. And the king, the one and only king who has salvation. He is salvation. This king was coming to them, but yet they did not know him. They rejected him. And the consequences for their rejection would be inevitable. There could be no escape from the judgment of God because of their unbelief. What a tragedy. This is why Jesus wept. He said, would you, even you had known. You see, they should have known. Why did they not know? Jesus tells us the reason they did not know at the end of verse 42. He says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. We must not ignore statements like this in, in the scriptures. We must, neither must we try to twist them or to distort their meaning. They did not know because it had been hidden from their eyes. Jesus said that they did not know him. They did not know the things that make for peace because these things were hidden from their eyes. How this magnifies the sovereign grace of God in salvation. You see, apart from the regenerating grace of God, no one, would know Jesus Christ. No one would know Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. To see him for who he is, to know him and to believe in him as Lord and Savior requires a spiritual understanding. And this is entirely the work of the Lord. Grace and grace alone is the difference. If you have seen Jesus for who he is, if you believe in him as your Lord and Savior, grace and grace alone is the only difference between you and the person who is not. It was nothing within you that caused you to know him and to believe in him. Paul said in Romans nine sixteen So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. God revealed him to you through the gospel. He renewed your mind. And he opened your heart and your mind so that you might know who Christ is. You might see him as he is. You've recognized him as the King of kings, as the Lord of lords, as the Lord and the Savior. And you have embraced him by faith. Oh, the matchless, marvelous grace of God. As John Newton wrote in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace, I once was blind, but now I see, was lost, but now I am found. You see, if you know Jesus Christ, if you've embraced him by faith, this should be a cause to rejoice in him and to thank him for what he has done for you. As we read this account and as we feel the deep sorrow of Jesus. We see the blindness they had to Christ. We should not think that we would have been any different. If we know our hearts apart from grace, we too, on that Friday, would have been shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So on this Palm Sunday, This should be the praise of our lips. Oh, but for the grace of God, there go I. You and I are debtors to grace. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace, you have been saved. So on this Palm Sunday... Let us praise and thank God for his mercy and grace. Praise him for his converting grace. Thank him for calling you out of darkness into his marvelous light. On this Palm Sunday, let us by grace stand by Christ and his cross at any cost and at any sacrifice. May we publicly and openly commit our lives to the Lord Jesus and direct our eyes and direct the eyes of the whole world to the crucified and the risen Savior. And on this Palm Sunday, let us rejoice and praise God for our King and our Savior has come. He has taken away our sins and may the contemplation of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem so many years ago cause us to look for his second coming. Your king and savior has come and he is coming again. Jesus will once again set his feet on that Mount of Olives. He is coming again in triumph. As John tells us in Revelation, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also who pierced him and all the families of the tribes of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. This is what we ought to contemplate on this Palm Sunday. And let me close by simply asking you this. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and your Savior? Are you at peace with God? Do you know the things that make for peace? Faith alone, in Christ alone. Repent of your sins. Embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you will be saved. You see, you can have peace with God right now. You can have the assurance of eternal life right now. If you are not saved, today your king has come. Today is the day of your visitation. Christ has come, and Christ has died, and Christ has, has risen again. You have heard the gospel and and salvation is offered to you right now. Trust him today and be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this beautiful passage. We thank you for Jesus. Oh, Father, we thank you that you sent him into this world to accomplish, to secure redemption for his people. We thank you, Father, as we look at Christ. We thank you for Jesus, for his steadfast resolve to save his people from their sins. We thank you, Father, that he bled and he died in our stead and that he rose again victorious. Father, we thank you for Jesus. I pray that all eyes would see him today, that you would draw all men to Christ. Father, I pray that your people today and every day would rejoice for our king has come, that we would sing praises, we would thank him for his grace and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.